Good morning again to you all. It's a pleasure to uh, get to speak to you today on February 2nd. The date, as you heard, that's celebrated as the Feast of the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. We celebrate this particular event in Christ's life on February 2nd because today is the 40th day after Christmas Day. 40 days since Christmas. Luke tells us that Christ's first visit to the temple took place when his mother Mary went up to Jerusalem for her purification. And as we'll see when we look more closely at what that purification is, that would have taken place 40 days or maybe a little over 40 days after the birth. So that's how we get February 2nd as the date of the presentation of Christ. So here's the plan for this sermon. I hope you have your Bibles open to page 805, is that right? To Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. We're going to look at that whole story uh, in the order that it takes place. We're going to look first at three commandments that Mary and Joseph kept in verses 21 to 24. Then we're going to look at the two people they met when they arrived in the temple. Simeon in verses 25 to 35 and Anna in verses 36 to 38. So here's a little almost rhyme to help you remember the sermon structure. Three commandments they kept, two people they met. I don't know, maybe that's not even an almost rhyme, but there it is. Three <laughs> commandments they kept and two people they met. So we begin with the three commandments they kept. One of Luke's emphases throughout this passage, as you may have heard, is that Mary and Joseph did for Jesus what was required by the law. Well, listen again to verses 22 to 24. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 27, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And finally, in verse 39, the story ends when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. This is a major emphasis in this passage. The law of Moses and the law of the Lord are just two different terms referring to the same thing, to the law that the Lord gave to his people Israel through the prophet Moses. This corresponds to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. God's law includes commandments about all sorts of things concerning every activity of human life. Farming, food preparation, commerce, warfare, sex, and childbirth. The law deals with all of these things and more because it's an expression of God's desire that the whole life of his people Israel should be sanctified. That in every part of their life, God's people should be holy, just as the Lord their God is holy. Belonging to the Lord means for Israel more than just living the way everyone else lives, plus a few sacrifices now and then. No, it means having every part of individual and communal life transformed, totally reshaped by and for the worship of the holy God. So by emphasizing that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, his adoptive father, obeyed the law in everything, Luke is showing us that they were devout Jews, eager to live as God's holy people, eager to have their lives shaped by his commandments. And that's a wonderful example to us, 
But more important than what this says about Mary and Joseph is what it says about Jesus. By highlighting the role of the law in this story, Luke is also showing us that when the Son of God came into the world, he came to a family and to a people whom God had been preparing for his arrival. One of the primary purposes of the law was to make Israel ready for the coming of Christ. So it not only told the people of Israel how to live and what to do, it also gave them signs. Signs of who God is, what he's like, and how he would save his people. These signs helped prepare devout Jews for Christ's coming, and they also help us, who live after Christ's first coming, to understand who he is and why he came. So I hope that's what will happen for us today as we dig into these three specific commandments mentioned in this passage, that they will each teach us something about who Christ is and why he came. So those three commandments, circumcision, purification, and presentation. Here's the first of those three commandments, the commandment of circumcision. Mary and Joseph had Jesus circumcised when he was eight days old, as you can read in verse 21. And that commandment of circumcision goes all the way back to Genesis 17, when God made a covenant with Abraham. God promised to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations, to give Abraham's children the land of Canaan, and to be their God forever. All that was God's part of the covenant. Abraham's part of the covenant was only to accept circumcision. So let me read to you from Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What God commanded Abraham here was reiterated in the law of Moses, as we'll see later, that every male in Israel, whether freeborn Israelite or foreign slave, must have his foreskin cut off, or else be cut off from his people. So why does God command circumcision? The point of circumcision is not that there's anything wrong with the foreskin, or that God is grossed out by it or something. No, of course, it was God who invented the foreskin in the first place. The point of circumcision is, as Genesis chapter 17 verse 11 tells us, to be a sign of the covenant. An Israelite man's circumcision is an irreversible sign in his flesh of the everlasting covenant. 
circumcision marks him as one belonging to a holy God and reminds him daily that he is part of a people called to holiness. Having your foreskin cut off hurts because holy living hurts and is costly. The foreskin is removed even though it's a normal part of the male body. Because holiness sometimes means letting God remove even the normal parts of our life. In circumcision, God doesn't destroy the penis, but he transforms it. And all this is an image of what God does in the lives of his whole people. He cuts us. Remember the sermon we heard not long ago on Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12, which says that the word of God is like a sharp, piercing sword. So God cuts us, but not to destroy us, rather to transform and to sanctify us. So circumcision is a sign of what should be going on in the Israelites' entire life and in his entire society. His foreskin is cut as a sign that his whole being needs to be cut and transformed by God. This is why we see circumcision applied figuratively to other body parts throughout the law and the prophets. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses promises that if any Israelite repents and turns to the Lord, then the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, the Lord complains about the unrepentant people of Israel in these words. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Literal circumcision is something that has to do with men's penises only. But the point of circumcision is to signify what needs to happen to the heart and the ears and the whole being of all men and women who want to love God. If Israel keeps the commandment to circumcise the penis, but doesn't let God sanctify the whole being and the whole community, then the circumcision itself was pointless. It was a waste of time. So when the eight day old Jesus is circumcised, something quite wonderful is happening. The sign of the covenant is made in the flesh of the one who has taken on flesh in order to renew the covenant. Jesus is the only Israelite ever to live up to the promise of his circumcision. He's the only man whose life after circumcision is entirely holy, entirely devoted to and transformed by God. And he is the one who makes what was signified by circumcision a reality in our lives as well. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 says, In Christ we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. If we put our faith in the one who was circumcised at the end of eight days and who uniquely among all Israelites lived out his circumcision perfectly, then our heart and our ears and our whole being are circumcised through his perfect holiness so that we can love the Lord.
So that circumcision. The second commandment that Mary and Joseph kept was the commandment of purification. According to the law, doing certain things made a person unclean or impure. And if you became unclean, you couldn't take part in worship again at the temple until you became clean, until you were purified. In most cases, getting clean again was as simple as taking a bath and then waiting for a certain period of time, according to what was specified in the law. In some cases, as in the one we'll discuss shortly, it was a little bit more complicated. And then after that was done, you would be clean again and could return to the temple and to worship God there. So it's important to say that the things that made a person unclean in the law were not always bad things. Unclean is not the same thing as sinful. So for example, touching a dead body made a person unclean. But that doesn't mean God wanted Israelites to avoid touching dead bodies. Obviously it's a practical necessity and also an important moral duty for Israelites to properly take care of the dead, right? You have to touch dead bodies. Having an emission of semen made a man unclean. But of course, it doesn't mean that was, it was wrong for that to take place in the course of marital sex. Menstruation made a woman unclean. But of course, that doesn't mean there's anything gross or sinful about menstruation. I have to be honest that I don't totally understand this clean and unclean stuff as well as I would like to, but let me hesitantly offer this observation. Perhaps what ties together all the examples just given is that they each have something to do with either the beginning or the end of human life. Contact with a dead body reminds us of our own mortality, that each of us is also going to end up as a dead body someday. And that in the meantime, we're alive only because our creator graciously sustains us. Semen and menstrual discharge remind us of the frailty and the mystery of our own origins. That somehow out of the mixture of your parents' goop, you came out. God created you out of that. Amazing. Dead people semen and menstrual blood remind us that we are mortal creatures, totally dependent for our life on the Lord, the giver of life, who was not born and who never passes away, but was from eternity and will be forever and ever. Perhaps the law requires Israelites to wash away those reminders of mortality before entering into the presence of the immortal one as a sign that these things, birth and death, are alien to him. Whether, I, whether or not I've got that exactly right, what's most relevant for our passage is that a woman also becomes unclean in childbirth itself. So let me read to you now from Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the son's foreskin shall be circumcised. Then the mother shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying 
she shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. Or if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest of the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So after giving birth to a son, a mother would be unclean as in her menstruation for seven days. After that, she remains in the blood of her purifying for a total of 40 days. That's how we get that February 2 date, right? 40 days after the birth of a son. The time is doubled if the newborn is a daughter, perhaps because the mother has just given birth to someone who may herself give birth one day. So there's kind of a double reminder of our creaturely origins. During this waiting period, the mother's lochial discharge, the blood and mucus and so on, that continues to flow from the vagina after childbirth should cease. And once the 40 or 80 days are up, she can become clean again by presenting these two sacrificial offerings at the temple. So that's what verse 22 is talking about when it says that the time came for their purification. It had been at least 40 days since Jesus' birth, at least 33 days since his circumcision, and Mary could now complete her purification. And unlike the child's circumcision, which could take place anywhere in the world, this purification of the mother could only take place in Jerusalem at the temple because this was the only place where sacrifices could be made to the Lord. This was the dwelling place of the Lord on earth. For those who could afford it, a lamb and a bird were the required sacrifices. But the law allows that poorer families who cannot afford a lamb could bring two birds instead. And Luke tells us in verse 24, that Mary and Joseph were one such family. They went up to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This detail speaks to the profound humility of the Son of God. He was willing not only to be born a human, but even to be born as one of the poor of humankind. As with circumcision, so too with this purification, what Mary and Joseph are doing is just the normal thing required by the law after childbirth. The same thing that any devout Jewish family would do. But it takes on a unique meaning because of the uniqueness of their child. If the mortality and creatureliness of the Israelites represented an obstacle to their fellowship with God, such that they had to cleanse themselves of it before they could enter into his presence and worship him. Then that obstacle is blown to smithereens in the incarnation. In the incarnation, 
the eternal Son of God takes everything that was a source of uncleanliness in humanity into his own being. He takes on flesh in a woman's womb and then passes through her vaginal canal, emerging covered in her blood and mucus. Not only does he touch corpses, he himself becomes a corpse for three days. So if the things connected with birth and death, the two outer limits of human life and human frailty, used to separate us from God, those same things now suddenly bring God closer to us than ever before, as God himself takes on flesh and is born and dies for us. So that's purification. The third commandment Mary and Joseph kept was the commandment of presentation. They presented Jesus to the Lord as their firstborn son. We see this in verses 22 and 23. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The quote there is actually a paraphrase, Luke's summary of a longer commandment in Exodus 13. So here's some of that commandment. Exodus 13 verses one and two. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. And he goes on in verses 11 to 13, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So there's different ways in which the firstborn male gets consecrated to the Lord, depending on what kind of species it is. The firstborn son of a sheep, a goat, or a cow, any animal that's suitable for sacrifice to the Lord, must be brought to the Lord in sacrifice. The firstborn son of a donkey, which is an unclean animal that you can't sacrifice to God, must be redeemed with a lamb. Either the donkey's owner must sacrifice a lamb in the place of the donkey, or else break the donkey's neck. And of course, firstborn human sons can't be either sacrificed or killed in any other way. No, every firstborn of man must be redeemed. A different part of the law in Numbers 18 verses 15 to 16 specifies that the way parents redeem their firstborn sons is by paying five shekels of silver, five silver coins to the temple. So this is what it means for Mary and Joseph to present Jesus to the Lord. They're going to present him to the Lord because as the firstborn son of an Israelite woman, his life belongs to the Lord. And then they're going to buy him back from the Lord. That's what redeem means, to buy back. They're going to buy Jesus back from the Lord at the fixed rate of five shekels. Pretty good deal. <laughs> so that's how the commandment works, but 
why is this commandment there? Why does the Lord require Israelite parents to buy their firstborn son's lives from him? Exodus 13 answers this question directly in verses 14 and 16. Exodus 13 verses 14 to 16. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Put differently, Israel owes the Lord for sparing their firstborn sons on the night of Passover when he took the lives of all the firstborn in Egypt. That story is in Exodus chapter 12, right before this commandment. You may remember that the way God spared all the firstborn of Israel was by commanding the families of Israel to kill a young lamb without blemish and to put its blood on the doorposts of their house. And the Lord said in Exodus 12, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. On that Passover night, God used the blood of a lamb to protect the firstborn sons of Israel from destruction. The commandment we've been discussing the commandment to redeem every new firstborn son with silver was a reminder of that merciful Passover protection. Now, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord and to pay the redemption price for him, things are coming full circle. Mary and Joseph will pay the five shekels of silver in remembrance that the Lord spared the firstborn of Israel by the blood of the Passover lamb. But the child for whom they are making this remembrance is himself the true Passover lamb. They are redeeming the one who by his blood will redeem all of God's people forever. That literal lamb's blood that was used on that Passover night was, as the Lord said in Exodus 12, verse 13, a sign for Israel. And so were these five shekels of silver. All along, God never really spared anyone's life because they killed a sheep or paid him $5. Rather, those things were signs, pointing forward to the real reason that he would spare their lives, the real reason for mercy, the one now being brought into the temple and presented to the Lord. So those are the three commandments that Mary and Joseph kept. The commandments of circumcision, purification, and presentation. And we've seen how each of these was a sign that pointed to Jesus. Now we move on to the two people that the family met when they arrived in the temple, Simeon and Anna, who each serve us as examples of what it looks like to prepare for and to respond to the coming of Christ. 
The first of these was Simeon, who appears in verse 25. Simeon lived in Jerusalem, and we read that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Like Mary and Joseph, Simeon is a faithful Jew. And as part of his faith, he is eagerly waiting for what he knows God has promised. The consolation of Israel. Simeon knows that God will console, which means comfort, his people. Because as a devout Jew, he's familiar with Israel's scriptures. He knows that the law and the prophets testify to a decisive salvation for God's people that had not yet taken place and to a coming anointed one or Christ who would bring about all of that salvation. Every devout Jew of Simeon's day could and should have known about these promises. Every devout Jew could and should have been waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the Christ who would bring it about. And we know that there were many Jews in Simeon's days who shared his hope. We can see that a little later in this same passage. But unfortunately, we also know that there were many who did not. Many of those who should have been waiting for the promised Christ failed to recognize him when he came. And the Simeons were more the exception than the rule. In Acts chapter 13, verse 27, the Apostle Paul, preaching to some of his fellow Jews, makes this observation. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, even though the prophetic scriptures were read publicly every week so that all could hear and learn. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers overwhelmingly failed to understand them. And so instead of joyfully receiving Jesus as the Lord's Christ, like Simeon does in this text, they mostly didn't recognize him and ended up unwittingly fulfilling what had been prophesied about him by handing him over to be crucified. Well, we too, here at Christ the King Anglican Church, or wherever you go to church normally, hear the Holy Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, and now also the New Testament Apostles, read and explained week by week. We should take the example of Simeon as an encouragement that if we pay attention and learn from what God lays out for us in Scripture, we too can be prepared for Christ's appearance. But we should take the example of the majority of the people and of their rulers as a warning. That if we hear the promises of God read every week, but don't actually pay attention and learn from them, we may unwittingly end up on the wrong side when Christ returns, to our surprise. Let me also observe that the scriptures prepared Simeon for Christ's first coming and prepare us for his second coming, not by giving us details about where and when everything will take place, but by working in our hearts and our lives so that we know and love God more and more deeply.
the Spirit of God speaking through the Scriptures prepared Simeon to meet Christ, not by showing him dates and locations of different end times events, but by showing Simeon what kind of salvation God had prepared for his people, and by forming in him a heart that loved what God had prepared. And that's how the Spirit will prepare us too for Christ's return, as we hear from the living God in his word week by week. The Spirit shows us what kind of salvation God has prepared for us and forms in us hearts that love what God has prepared. On top of all the public promises of God that Simeon must have been familiar with through the scriptures, we read in verse 26 that Simeon had received a further private promise from God through the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This unique promise is pretty cool, but I want to emphasize that it's of secondary importance. There were many, many men and women throughout Israel's history who had the same faith as Simeon and who, in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. What mattered to all of these Old Testament saints was not whether the Lord's Christ would come in their own lifetime, but that he would come, and that whenever he did come, he would bring salvation to all of God's faithful people, even to the faithful dead. And that's what matters to Simeon too. So what's most exciting for Simeon is not the special timing that he gets to enjoy, but the appearance of the one who will save all of God's people across all time. And so when Simeon follows the Spirit's prompting, and appears in the temple that day and sees Mary and Joseph come into the temple complex with Jesus in their arms, verse 28 tells us, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Somehow the spirit shows him that this baby boy is the Christ. And Simeon's first response is to embrace the Christ and to bless God for sending him. Then follows in verses 29 to 32, Simeon's joyful and moving prayer. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Simeon calls himself the servant of the Lord, and he gratefully acknowledges that God, his master, has kept his promises to his servant. Now that Simeon has seen God's salvation with his own eyes, he says he can die in peace. Notice that Simeon hasn't actually seen Christ do anything yet. It will be another 30 or so years before the baby he's holding will begin his public ministry, 
and then another few years on top of that before the cross and the resurrection. We never hear from Simeon again in the Gospels. We don't know when he did die, but it seems safe to assume that even though he got to see the Christ before he died, he didn't get to see much of the ministry of Christ before he died. We can assume that he too, at some point, died in faith. And yet he says that already now, based just on what he has seen, he can depart in peace. Simeon is an example to us in this way also. We haven't held Christ in our arms, yet one day a beautiful thought that we will be able to and that he will hold us in his arms. That's wonderful. But we haven't seen Christ in that way yet. But in a sense, we have seen much more of Christ than Simeon did. We know how he died for our sins, how he overcame death and rose again to new life, how he ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand, how he sent the Spirit to his church and sent his church out to proclaim him to all of Israel and to all the Gentile nations, as Simeon anticipates in his prayer. We've seen all that. But we are still waiting to see the completion of our salvation, to see the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, his judgment of all people, his renewal of the whole heaven and earth, and our entrance into the life of the world to come. Like Simeon, there's a lot that we're still waiting to see. But like Simeon, we can have peace now simply by looking to Jesus. Simeon's sense of profound peace came not from seeing the whole story of salvation play out before his eyes, but simply from gazing at Jesus. Simeon didn't see everything that the child in his arms would grow up to do, and we don't yet see the salvation that he brought fully realized. But Simeon sees, and we see, that the Son of God has come into the world. Once we see that, once we see that the Son has come, we can breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that everything else, all of God's good purposes for us and for his world, are sure to follow. I have to skip over Simeon's words to Mary in verses 34 and 35, because this sermon is already too long. But I hope you will all get to hear a wonderful sermon on those very, very important verses someday. The second person to meet Christ in this passage is the prophetess Anna, who we read in verses 36 and 37 was a woman advanced in years. Having lived with her husband for seven years, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. We don't know exactly how old she was when she was married, but the clear implication is that after being widowed relatively early in life, she has lived as a celibate widow for many decades. Perhaps she could have married again if she had wanted to, and there certainly would have been nothing wrong with it if she had. But there is something special, very special, about the way God has called her to live instead. 
the time and energy that she might have devoted to a second husband, to their domestic affairs and to the raising of children, she instead devotes to worshiping the Lord in his temple with fasting and prayer, night and day, so that it's like she practically never leaves God's presence there. Anna is practicing the advice that the apostle Paul, himself a celibate man, would later give in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 35. Paul says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul makes it clear that he's not slamming or forbidding marriage, not at all, but that he wants Christians to consider the advantages of remaining unmarried. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is celibate. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To live as a celibate devoted to the things of the Lord is a gift from God. And to live in marriage is also a gift from God. And it's God who decides which of these gifts he will give to any of his people at any given time. God gave Anna the gift of celibacy in the latter part of her life. And he also gave her the gift of prophecy. This is the first thing we learn about her in verse 36, that she's a prophetess. Anna's not the only woman prophet in the Bible. Moses' sister Miriam, the judge Deborah, and a woman you may never have heard of called Huldah, who prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Each of these women is called a prophetess. And inspired words from each of these women appear in the Bible. They all helped write scripture. It's interesting that in Anna's case, we don't get any word for word record of her prophecy, but only a general description of her prophetic activity. When in verse 38, she happened to come up to the temple at the very hour that Jesus was visiting. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, that is of Jesus, to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Like Simeon, Anna was among those devout Jews waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But her special role is to bring the news of the Redeemer's arrival to the rest of those who are waiting. This is what a prophet does. She speaks to God's people about Christ and about the redemption that he brings. And Anna seems to carry out her mission with joy and thankfulness to God. So with Simeon and Anna side by side, we have a beautiful example of what it looks like to respond to Christ's coming. What it looked like 
for devout first century Jews, but also what it looks like for us to respond to his coming as we wait for his return. Simeon shows us that the coming of Christ brings us peace. Anna shows us that the coming of Christ also spurs us to new activity, to mission. This is what our response to Christ's coming can look like as well. Profound inner peace and joyful outward mission. And we see in this passage that both aspects of that response, the peace and the mission, can only come as gifts from the Holy Spirit. It was only because the Holy Spirit prepared Simeon through the scriptures and led him through private whispers that he could recognize and find peace in Christ. For now, we behold Christ differently than he did, through faith rather than with our eyes, but the same Spirit can help us to recognize Christ more and more as the one who brings us peace. And Anna was able to carry out her joyful mission through the exercise of the spiritual gifts God had given her. The gifts God gave her were of celibacy and of prophecy. The gifts he gives each of us may be the same or may be different, but they come through the same spirit and will empower us to carry out whatever particular mission God has given us. I speak to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.